everybody and welcome to Coach's Corner. I am coming to you from Marco Island, Florida, where I am attending for the second time Dr. Joe Dispenza's Advanced Retreat. If you don't know who Dr. Joe Dispenza is, I encourage you to Google him and spend some time listening and watching his YouTube videos. He is one of my favorite teachers, and his teachings have impacted my life and my own teachings in so many ways. And there's so many beautiful takeaways that I'm getting from this week, reminders and new information, and you'll hear that infused in my coaching throughout the year. We're also at this beautiful resort, and my room is close to the beach and the pool where there's live music going on, so you may hear some of that in the background. Kind of hard to get a studio experience in a hotel room, but it's it's beautiful music, and I'm sitting here looking at the ocean and feeling really expansive and hopeful, not just about my own life, but about the world. This past week, as many of you probably know, here in America, there was quite an incident that happened in the Capitol in D.C. This past, I think it was Wednesday, I've lost track of space and time a little bit. And I know many of you were very activated and triggered by that. It was just like, oh, no, not again. And those of you who've had oppression, violence, racism, trauma in your past, anytime you felt shocked, when those things happen and you see them, it almost can reactivate the wounds. So I want to say to you, really honor what you need, honor your feelings. When we see things like that, what it can bring up is a lot of anger. And those of you who have ever suffered from any kind of abuse or isms, is you probably had to suppress your anger. And if you feel really triggered, don't hold that anger in or let it leak out by by blaming or internalizing it or judging do an anger release. You can always go to christinehassler.com slash anger release and get the excerpt from Expectation Hangover where I guide you through it. Get that emotion out. Have a good cry. Journal. Reach out to people. But shift that energy as soon as possible. You don't want to sit in the anger or the sadness or the shock for too long because then that's what your body gets conditioned to. So use those resources. Another resource you can always go to is christinehasler.com slash gratitude. That's my free gratitude meditation. Gratitude for me is the frequency, the emotion that pulls me out of anxiety. I've shared publicly a couple years ago when I was having a panic attack on an airplane, I had just started writing a list of gratitudes and feeling gratitude and it pulled me out of the anxiety so, so quickly. And there are always things in your life to be grateful for. So I hope those tools and tips help. Another thing I shared during the live, which gives me hope, is that well, I'm going to make a comparison to my experience here at Dispenza. And in no way, shape, or form am I comparing the magnitude of everything that's happened this year, history that we stand on, things like storming the Capitol. I'm not comparing the magnitude of that to my own personal experience. But I'm drawing a connection because sometimes to understand the macro, it helps if we have a perspective from the micro. So during my experience here, and I've been doing Dr. Joe work for probably about a year and a half now. And like I said, this is my second advanced long retreat where we are meditating hours and hours and hours a day, I would say at least, at least 10 hours a day. And 
when the first couple days when I was sitting there with no distractions, <laughs> I was really confronted with aspects of myself that I'm still working through. For example, the oppressor inside of me, the hater inside of me. There's still a big part of me, and it's a self-protective part, that can be incredibly judgmental, mostly of myself, can be incredibly harsh on myself, incredibly oppressive on myself, and it's a mean aspect. And I know why it's there. I don't need to get into the why. It's just at this point, I process the trauma around it. At this point, it's just a habit. I'm going to speak more about this throughout the year, but a lot of you are still in the phase where processing your trauma, healing your trauma, going back and doing some of that work with the past is important. And there are a lot of you who've done enough of that. You've kind of done enough of the processing. And now it's more about compassion and it's more about catching yourself when you're in habitual feelings. Because that's a lot of the reason why our life doesn't change is we've done all this work and we process all this trauma. However, we're not experiencing change because we're still in habitual emotions. Example, if you've processed a lot of your trauma around being victimized, but you still feel like a victim in a lot of your life, you're in the habit. And maybe go back a couple episodes and listen to my coaching call with Leah, where my intention was to have massive compassion for what she was going through and pull her out of the victim programming. I kept saying to her, you want to be on the freeway, you want to be on the express lane, and every time you take an exit into feeling regret or feeling victimized or any of those things, you're back in an old habit. So there's a there's a balance, everyone, of, of processing the past and healing the past and honoring the difficulty of our experience with also going, okay, I'm continuing to create this pattern of victim or hopelessness or suffering or whatever it is with my thoughts and emotions. And I've, I've got to keep, I've got to stop taking that exit off the freeway of where I want to go by going back into familiar programs. So I'll keep saying this in different ways <laughs> as I coach people and as my work continues to evolve. But I just wanted to plant some seeds and talk about how confronting that oppressive judger inside of me was so important because I needed to see it. I needed to see it. It needed to be so in my face that I could really see and experience how bad it can get. And the events that happened this week in D.C., they're in our face. Sometimes we need to see the darkness, the oppression, how bad some things are to be like, whoa, we need to shift this. We need to change this. And the more and more people that see that and experience that, the more and more people are committed to making a different world and committed to making changes. So yes, so much of what we experienced this year is trauma. Go back and listen to my Coach's Corner with Rebecca Tate where we talk so much of that about that. So much of what happened Wednesday at the Capitol is just gross and like, oh, it's just like, is this a movie that I'm watching? Oh my gosh. But it's, it's, it's a reality of a certain consciousness. And the other thing that's important to remember is that's not everyone. I really believe in humanity. And especially being at this retreat with 1,300 people, so many people are committed to consciousness and committed to change. So yes, it's, it's ex being exposed. We're seeing it. But remember, it's not all of humanity. 
And so we've got to continue to focus on how we personally can shift and change our own consciousness because that's the contribution that we make. Now, on to my guest. My commitment to you this year is to really bring you people that maybe you may not have heard of, maybe some big names, but really have juicy, deep conversations that get you thinking and that really offer you some different perspectives and some tools. I know so many of you have loved the conversation I had with my friend Beck Tate about 2020 and 2021 and her intuitive perspective on all of it. And I think you're really going to enjoy the conversation with my guest today, Imagine. She's a sex educator, teacher, and author. And I really, really appreciate her work because I've noticed that a lot of sex educators, oh, there's a twins of shame. For example, if you can't have mind-blowing orgasms, there's something wrong with you. And what I love about the way Imagine teaches is it's all about finding your own sexuality, coming back to your own body. There's no shame. There's only compassion. And she's fierce, and she's also very, very, very gentle. So I think you're really going to get a lot out of this conversation. Let me tell you a little bit more about her. Like I said, she's been a sex educator and author who guides people into sexual empowerment for over two decades. She speaks all over the world. She's done a TEDx talk called Owning Your Sexual Power. She's the author of Woman on Fire, Nine Elements to Wake Up Your Erotic Energy, Personal Power, and Sexual Intelligence, and the co-author of the best-selling classic, Lesbian Secrets for Men. I'll put a link to her website in the show notes. She's also hosting a New Year's ritual a little bit later in January that I'm going to be a part of. I'm going to tune in for the Zoom call or the webinar that you may want to sign up for as well. All right. And now on to my conversation with Imagine. Enjoy. Imagine, welcome to the show. I'm so glad to have you joining me today. Thank you. It's so fun to be here. Well, before we started recording, we were chatting a bit and I was sharing with you how looking at my sexuality and really addressing it was a component I left out of my life for a very long time. I was Mm -hmm. in the personal development work in my early twenties, therapy long before that, and had focused so much on the emotional, behavioral, mental, spiritual, and had maybe looked at sexual trauma, but really left sexuality out. I thought it kind of just, you know, found its way into other areas of my life, but really never focused on it. And when I started focusing on my sexuality and working with coaches and teachers specifically around it, it was like, whoa, first of all, there's a lot to unpack there. And second, how did I leave this, this huge part of who I am and my life force out of the equation? And the answer I got to, to sum it up was shame. You know, it just wasn't something that I felt comfortable going into. So I'd love to start the conversation with why do you think so many of us really struggle with sexuality, both our identification with it and really diving into it and understanding how this incredible aspect of ourselves really works and impacts our life? Why do you think it's such a struggle? Yeah. Thank you for that. You know, I mean, first of all, I want to say that your experience is not unusual. There are, you know, I hear that from women all the time when they come into doing work with me, which is typically really, I mean, maybe they get it in their thirties. I think more women do get it in their forties, fifties, 
sixties and beyond even. And, you know, I think there's a lot of reasons for that. I think you definitely hit on one of the biggest. I, I think most people don't grow up without having been shamed about their sexuality in some way. They've either been shamed about their body. They've been shamed about how they have sex. They've been shamed about their desires, what they're attracted to, who they're attracted to. You know, the list is actually quite long. And, you know, so that's such a huge piece of so many people's experiences. So that's a really big one. And then you you couple that with the fact that we have very poor sexuality education. Um, most people do not get any kind of comprehensive sexuality education. You know, we, we are still debating that in, in the United States mm-hmm. and certainly in other parts of the world. And so when we don't have the resources that we need and we don't have someone saying, yeah, this is an important part of your life. It's worth talking about. And, you know, let's have a real conversation about it, not just something, salacious or that, you know, relates to pop culture, but something that's actually quite meaningful. When you don't have someone saying that, then people are really left to their own devices to figure it out. And, you know, we've had generations and generations of people doing it that way. And that's actually why I went into this field. Mm. You know, I grew up so isolated and and really without resources. I was raised by a, a single dad who was in the military and he was kind of your, your typical military guy. And so, you know, I wasn't exactly having you know, <laughs> open, yeah. non-judgmental conversations about sexuality with my dad. So I think most of us experience that. And, um, you know, and then there's a point, I think, in most people's lives where they realize, wow, like something about this isn't working. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't have the pleasure and joy I want to have or, you know, something's gone really wonky in my relationship or my marriage and I don't know what to do. A lot of times I think that is what what propels people to, to do something, uh, different or to seek out resources. Um, and I think that's the other piece is that actually a lot of people don't know that there are resources for adults, you know, even when, um, when people ask me what I do and I say, Oh, you know, I I say it in different ways, depending where I am and what kind of mood I'm in that day. (laughs) But, um, if I say I'm a sexuality educator, a lot of times the response is, Oh, so you work with teenagers, right? Teaching the birds and the bees kind of thing. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Cause clearly that's the only place for sexuality education. (laughs) You know, people don't really have a framework for adult sexuality education. So usually I say, no, I actually work with former teenagers who never got the sex education. Right. Um, so yeah, I think it's, I think it's lack of resources, lack of education. I think it's shame. It's, you know, sometimes it's religious upbringing or cultural upbringing that, you know, where sexuality is very taboo or there's Mm -hmm. very, um, very narrow ideas about what that gets to look like. Um, so yeah, you're not the only one. Um, and I know, you know, this is airing in January and I always do a new year's ritual every year. I'm doing it again this year. I've been doing it for 11 years, this new year's ritual, which is, you know, I've titled it differently over the years, but what would it mean to have your best sexual year yet? Mm. You know, it's like we, we oftentimes we start the new year with these rituals around planning our lives, setting intentions, you know, (laughs) Yeah. Making, making the vision boards, you know, all the things. And so often we leave out sexuality. So I started doing this 11 years ago and, um, and I've done it every year because it gets to be that important Mm. that we get to, we get to make space for it too. And is that a ritual people can still sign up for that you can lead them through? Yeah, it is. Yeah. How would they do that? This month. 
They can go to, good question, amyjogoddard.com. There will be information at amyjogoddard.com, okay, which is um, the name I am shifting out of, but um, we, are, we are in the process right now. <laughs> Um, so that or imagination.com. So we will, we will make sure that you, you have those links, but yeah, it's, uh, I believe it's on Friday, the 22nd. So if anyone wants to join us, I love, love that. that. And what inspired the name change for you? For, I mean, I've known for a long time that eventually I would change my name and it's so, it's kind of weird when you've published books under a name and, um, I'm a filmmaker and there's sort of like a lot of, pieces <laughs> that are kind of in the public eye. Um, but I never felt like Amy Jo really fit me. It mm-hmm. just, it never, never fit me. Um, people shortened it all the time and I didn't like that. I really didn't like that. And, you know, it just, for me, it was about waiting to really receive the name. I knew it wasn't something I was going to think my way to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it came in a, in a ceremony, it came from more of a spiritual space and it took a long time. And when it finally came, I was like, oh. really, that gets to be my name. <laughs> and they were like, oh, I'm sorry. Did you not hear us? Here you go. <laughs> so, <laughs> I love that. Let's, let's run that by you again. So yeah, so we, I've been in, in a really beautiful shift. Um, you know, there's something really powerful about naming yourself and, um, yeah, and, So I don't even know what all that journey is going to be yet, but I'm in it right now. Well, I I imagine it's very empowering and empowerment is what you do. You really help people reach sexual empowerment, which sounds amazing. And I'm sure a lot of people, including myself, are wondering, what does that mean? Because I think when we think of sexuality, the first thing we think about is having sex with another person. But that's so just a piece of what sexuality is. So how do you define sexual empowerment? Oh, yes. This is the million dollar question. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I define it really holistically. Um, so it's not like a sentence. (laughs) It's, it's, um, I wrote a book called women on fire, nine elements to wake up your erotic energy, personal power, and sexual intelligence. And that book really is my model of sexual empowerment. Those nine elements came out of the work that I've done with women for so many years, um, decades at this point. And, um, what I started to look at was that I was having the same conversations over and over with women. Um, there were lots of flavors of those conversations, but you know, when I looked at all of it, it was very clear. There are these many, many doorways that people enter into this work through. Um, and I really wanted people to see sexual empowerment from this broader view to understand that whatever doorway was right for them, that's where they get to start. It's not kind of one thing. And so often we treat sex as, you know, object A goes in slot B and then do this. And, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it can be very formulaic. Uh, to, to a problematic degree. And so, um, you know, I think there gets to be a freedom in our approach to our own sexual empowerment. For some people, it's their voice. It's, you know, which is the first element in the book. Um, I start there because it's so important and so many people feel like they lost their voice or they never really had one around sex and sexuality and their body. But for other people, it's, desire, you know, it's like, wow, I really want to understand my desires, or I really want to be able to communicate my desires more effectively 
or, you know, my partner and I have different desires and how do we figure that out? How do we navigate that? So there's all these relationship pieces around desire and communication and understanding one another's bodies. But there's really also that place of being at home in our own bodies, mm-hmm. also understanding our, our emotions and how our emotions impact sex and sexuality. It's such a big piece of it. Um, you know, and then really the empowerment of understanding our own pleasure, our own ecstasy, how to, how to have more of that in our lives and seeing that it's not just about sex. It's really sexual empowerment is about how we embrace and love our bodies, our desire, our pleasure, um, how we stand in confidence, how we get to be playful, how we, you know, and really how we are at home in the self. And that's one of the biggest ideas I talk about in my work is what does it mean to really be at home in Mm. the self Mm. and to show up in relationship from that place of home, because that's a very, very different place than, than many of us have had modeled for us. And so, so there's so many doorways and it really, you know, different things may come up And, and for some people it's healing, right? So it's healing the trauma, it's healing the shame that you mentioned. It's overcoming whatever guilt we've carried about our sexuality, our sexual past, our relationships, you know? So I think a lot of times there's a, there's a big reclamation that is a part of our empowerment. It's like, what are the things that either I turned my back on or the things that I pushed to the side because I didn't know how to deal with them, um, or the things that I was told were not appropriate, or I didn't get to have, or I didn't get to explore. And so I think there's, there's such a big piece around healing and reclamation and then really stepping into who is a sexual person that I want to be and how does that get to impact all the other parts of my life? I want to go back to something you said about how our emotions impact our sexuality and impact our sex life. Emotions are something we talk about a lot on the show. I'm a big advocate and teacher of how to actually feel and process our emotions rather than just recycle them or stuff them down. Could you unpack that a little bit, how how our emotions impact our sexuality and, and our sex life? Maybe you can give some examples of certain emotions in particular and how they may impact us. Oh, the list is so long. I know. <laughs> it's the <laughs> longest chapter in the book, actually, the mm. emotion chapter. And there's so much more I could have written. Um, I love talking about this piece as well. I think that it is you know, it's, it's so many pieces, you know, it's understanding our own defense mechanisms and where they came from. It is a lot of times unpacking the old stories that we have about our sexuality and our, our bodies that we're still carrying. Because a lot of times what we do is, is we have these like pivotal experiences around our sexuality when we're young. And then those experiences were so dramatic for us, or they were so important for us or meaningful to us that we then carry them into every relationship we go into as we get older until we decide we want to heal whatever that pattern is. And so, you know, there's, there's such a range of things, you know, being betrayed, you know, by a sexual partner, feeling betrayed by our own bodies. You know, Mm -hmm. I think that's a big one. You know, there's, there can, it can bring up so much shame. It can bring up sadness. It can bring up anger, rage, 
And then a lot of times we're projecting those in our relationships. And so a lot of times it's like our sexual operating system needs to be updated. You know, it's like, Mm -hmm. like maybe we're updating ourselves in these other ways, but sometimes we're still in a very, a much more immature place Mm -hmm. if we haven't done that, that upgrade in, in, in those emotional aspects of our, you know, our sexuality that, we're still holding on to, or we're still carrying resentment about. Mm. And obviously like resentment and anger don't really make for great sex. Most of the time. I mean, (laughs) yes, there's a thing about makeup sex and, you know, there can be like some hotness there, but you know, in the general rule, like that's not how we want to be having sex. Um, and so, you know, when we have those unprocessed emotions, emotions are our physical experiences. We experience emotions through the body. And so I think there's, there's big pieces here that are important. You know, one is that, that we're connected to our body enough and we're connected enough to our pleasure also as part of our experience of our body that we can, that we have a framework to understand our emotions. We, we get to understand the, the signs and the signals and the ways of processing mm-hmm. that might come up. And, you know, it's important, you know, our body gives us signals all the time, you know, and sometimes that means we're like, I'm feeling really wet or really juicy or wow, what is that about? You know, what does that relate to? You know, so it's like really being open to listening to our bodies, listening to our genitals, listening to our skin, listening to what, what we're being told because we're being given information all the time. We've just learned to shove down the the emotion so much so that a much. lot of times it's dammed up, right? So much. I mean, we were talking about the signals. I was thinking about the the alarm signals our body gave us. And there was one uh, past lover in my life, a guy that I wanted to make a relationship that wasn't. And, and we wouldn't see each other that much. But every time I had sex with him, I get a yeast infection every single time. And I never get them. It was my body going, nope. Like this is not, this is not yeah. the person. So it can be yeah. those like good juicy signals. It can also be those signals that your body's like, no, this isn't safe. This isn't the person because the body does know. And I'm so glad that you brought up how our emotions really impact both our experience of sex and mentally how we relate to sex. So I'll just give another personal example so people can start connecting the dots. When you mentioned, you know, our body may have betrayed us in some way. And that was my case. I had a lot of physical ailments. I was a really late bloomer, so late to puberty, really behind everybody. So that really influenced my own sexuality because I felt like everybody else was getting boobs and all the things and I wasn't. And I was late to that party. So it it carried a tremendous amount of shame, a tremendous amount of my body's going to betray me, something goes wrong. And so how it impacted me sexually is, is one shame and not really feeling like I could let go, always being self-conscious and two fear, like a lot of fear. I'd have massive fear about STDs, even if I was taking every precaution because I hadn't yet let go of that emotion of something's going to go wrong. Like my body doesn't work. Like it's not safe was kind of the, the messaging there. And once I started to really unpack that, it was like, my whole, my physical experience, because there's a physical experience of sex, right? And then there's like the mental, emotional experience of sex. And I know they're hard to separate, but for me, it was helpful to see, wow, this is impacting me on the physical level, but also impacting how I think of sex and how I relate to sex and what comes up for me. Because there's how we are in the act of it. And then there's all the stuff that comes up before, after, all of that, that can be mm-hmm. so difficult to navigate if we haven't gone back and really healed 
a lot of those core experiences. And I imagine that, and you can confirm this, is you're not just talking about emotion in regards to our sexuality. Like I gave a specific example of my body, but it could be I have unresolved anger at dad for abandoning me. That has nothing mm-hmm. to do with necessarily sex, but that can come up in sex. Yes. Oh, sure. Yeah. Because we store, you know, we store emotions that are unprocessed in our body. And so, you know, a lot of times people will cry when they have sex or some, or penetration, a lot of times, especially, um, no matter your gender penetration can really bring a lot of emotion forward for people because I think, you know, we're tapping into these things that we've pushed down and, when we open our bodies that way, and when we allow ourselves to be that vulnerable, sometimes those things are just sitting right under the surface. And it's like, we unleash some of it and it can be really, really powerful. Sex can be such an incredible emotional release. And, you know, I think it's important for people to not be afraid of that and to know that that's normal. It's normal for that to come up. I think sometimes people don't know how to handle it or partners don't know how to Mm -hmm. handle it when that kind of emotion does come up during sex. And so sometimes, you know, if you have a caring partner, you know, they'll stop, you know, it's like, Mm -hmm. oh gosh, we should stop. And it's good to talk about those things. Like, how do you want to handle that? Because sometimes stopping actually isn't the thing. Sometimes we want to keep going and we just need to process it and we need to cry and wail and orgasm to have all the messy, snotty, whatever in the same experience. And, um, and so, so stopping, you know, checking in with your partner is important, but a lot of times it's not just like stop. It's actually, help me move through this. Yeah. Um, and sometimes we don't have the language to ask for that yeah. or, or we don't know exactly what to ask for in those moments. As such a powerful experience. I mean, I knew my husband was my husband when probably about, I don't know, a month into our relationship. And I had already, well, a month into we had physically met. We had a relationship before we physically met through WhatsApp because we lived in two different countries, but that's another story. And I had done a lot of work. I had done a lot of sexual somatic healing. I really was um, intentional about opening up that aspect of my life and deep healing work around that. And I, we had one experience where we were having sex and that happened. It just, something cracked open and I started sobbing and wailing uncontrollably. And fortunately he, he slowed, but he didn't stop. He just really held and held for the entire experience. And I don't think I can think of another moment in my life where I felt so free, so free. Mm. There was an element of self-consciousness in there, but I think it had to be just to, to, to clear the shame. And mm-hmm. it was the best cathartic release I've ever had in my entire yeah. life. <laughs> and it created deep intimacy. And I think sometimes we think, sex has to be this, uh, you know, whatever we see in movies or porn, that it has to be this like mind blowing, hot, multi-orgasmic experience. And that's an element of it, but it can also be incredibly therapeutic. And that was never in any of my conversations about sex, about how sex could be deeply, deeply healing and help us heal trauma from the body as well. Which brings me to my next question something that comes up so often on this show and so often when I work with women, and I know it it happens to both men and women, obviously, is that we experience some kind of sexual abuse, whether it's incest, molestation, rape, 
some kind of sexual trauma or even just having really uncomfortable, inappropriate experiences. How does someone who does have sexual trauma even begin to start to heal that so they don't continue to dissociate with sex? Intentionally, for sure. Mm -hmm. You know, I think it's, it's understanding what's happening because so many people learn to dissociate sexually at a young age because of a traumatic experience. And they're not even aware that that's what they're doing because yeah. that's what sex has always been like for them. And so I think, you know, the first thing is really getting to understand that that is what's happening and to tap into your desire to be present sexually. Um, and so then like you mentioned somatic work, like there's like doing somatic work, um, doing the healing work, being witnessed in whatever way you need to be witnessed around your healing. You know, I think a lot of times, you know, most of the work I do is group work because I think that that witnessing and that, that community healing is so, so powerful. Yeah. Um, a lot of times that's, that's what we need. We need to be heard and we need to be seen in our stories and be held to like what gets to be next and that we don't stay stuck there. I've definitely had clients over the years who have been so identified with their trauma that they didn't have a sexual identity beyond that. And so so for some people, it's like that re-identification process is going to be really important. For other people, it's reclaiming their bodies, and that can look many different ways. For some people, it's really learning their own pleasure, you know, and the empowerment that comes from understanding their own bodies and really anchoring in that their body is theirs. It's not somebody else's, even if someone took something from them that they were not wanting to give. And so, you know, trauma healing is a complex process yes. um, and it looks different for everyone, um, you know, but I think no matter what people need some kind of support, you know, I think having a therapist is really important, especially in early stages when people are raw, when they really need someone who can really be with them in that space, um, that piece is important. And I think later stages, which is generally when I work with people that's where we get to move from that place of feeling so raw and victimized in the experience to integrating the experience into the whole of who we are, why it happened, you know, and not from a place of like, it's your fault, but from a place like from a soul's place mm. of, you know, there, there's a, there's a bigger purpose here. If I went through an experience that dramatic, that impacted me so deeply, there's a deeper experience, you know, for myself, it led me into my work, you know? And so I'm grateful for the traumas and the, the really challenging experiences I went through when I was growing up and I really didn't have resources because it led me into this work, I wouldn't be sitting here with you today. Mm -hmm. So for, you know, that's not necessarily the path for everyone, but there's something for everyone there. And so I think those later phases is where that reclamation gets to happen, that, um, that owning of our own power and how we want to show up sexually. And the more sexual skills we build, the more we're able to show up in confidence, the more it feels like ours. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't feel like we're following the sexuality of someone else. And I think for women and in particularly for heterosexual women, but I think all women are really socialized 
to follow the sexuality of men. And sometimes that comes with trauma attached to it. Sometimes it's just, they make the moves, they do the initiation, they decide how sex goes and you just do what they want to do. And it, it, you know, I've just heard from so many women over the years that they don't feel like sex is for them. Mm. And so I think when we make that shift that this gets to be for me, this isn't just for my partner and what they want, whatever their gender, that's a huge healing moment for people. Mm. Absolutely. So how does, um, I'm just thinking of a woman who may really be relating to this. She may be in partnership for a while, or she may be dating and she may be in a dynamic where sex really is for the other person. Like it's more about how do I please this person? How do I do what's right? How do I become even more desire? How do I sexually satisfy the other? So that awareness that we're doing that is the first step. How can we start to shift that so that we do become more empowered? Because I know it probably is difficult to go from thinking sex is for your partner to being sexually empowered and really reclaiming your body and that sex is for you as well. It's really for both people in the dynamic. How can we start to bridge that gap? Yeah, lots of ways. You know, I think one of the big ways is expanding our ideas of what we think sex is. You know, we all know the story of like what we're taught sex is supposed to be because we see the same story of sex over and over and over again in every movie, Mm. in every book, (laughs) you know, um, it's always this idea of, you know, spontaneous desire, right? Mm -hmm. Like he walks into the room and she shudders, you know, (laughs) it's like their eyes lock and like cut to, you know, hot makeout session, cut to naked in bed, having, you know, swinging from the chandelier, Mm -hmm. mutual orgasms, and now there's world peace. (laughs) (laughs) Like we know what that story is and it has limited us so much. And, and, you know, I think it limits people of all genders. You know, I I don't think that, I don't think a lot of cisgendered men are really thrilled about that story either. I think that, that it harms all of us. So, so I think it's really expanding our ideas, you know, that sex is not just intercourse. Sex is a lot of things you know, I am not a fan of the term foreplay because I think it's actually a really sexist term because when you think about what, what usually falls under that umbrella of foreplay, it tends to be the things that get, you know, people with, with vulvas off, you know, Mm -hmm. it tends to be what gets women off. And so what makes that like before the real thing, what makes that not like the main course, so to speak. So I think we get to expand our ideas about sex and then really explore new things, new territory. You know, one of the things that myself and lots of sex educators like to have people do is create a yes, no, maybe list. You know, if you, if you wrote your yes, no, maybe list today, what's on your yes list, you know, and it might be certain sex acts. It might be ways you want to feel. It might be the kinds of relationship experiences you want to have or sexual experiences you want to have. Like there's a lot of things that could go on that yes list, you know, and that's like, I'm definitely in, right? Like mm-hmm. with the right partner or whatever, I'm, I'm in for that. You know, the no list is like, these are the things that are off the table for me. This is not hot for me. This is not, not a yes for me, <laughs> you know, and you get, you get to have that and you get to be okay with that. And your partner gets to be okay with that. Um, 
So I think getting really clear about that and talking with your partner is so helpful. And I think that maybe list is sometimes the most interesting part of it because the maybe list is, well, I might be curious about this and under the right circumstances, this, the, you know, or this makes me really nervous, but maybe someday, you know, or, you know, God, I read this fantasy about this thing one time and I don't even know how I would do it, but it just sounds so like, I would love to experience that, you know? So that maybe list is a real place of exploration and, um, possibility. And so I think we're not used to having nuanced conversation about sex like this, where we're really getting into details. You know, it, it tends to be more like, do you want to, okay, great. You know, and a lot of times even that doesn't happen. Like just assumptions are made. So it's such a big piece of it that we start to create our own language for sex and sexuality, understanding the different things that, that might be a part of that. And sometimes that might mean like, I'm going to go make love to a tree or to, in the, mm-hmm. you know, to myself in the grass, you know, under the sunshine on my skin, you know, like, like there's a whole eco-sexual movement now, you know, that's like really incorporates nature into our sexuality. Like it, it can look so many different ways. Um, and the more we expose ourselves to the different ways sex can look, um, the more we have territory that we feel like we can explore. I think a lot of times people just don't even know where to explore. Yeah. I think that was leading to my next question, which is, I mean, you mentioned pleasure many times and I know when I've talked to women, especially women that are in our be the queen program, a big piece of it is self-pleasure really coming home to your body, coming home to your sexuality and not, you know, making your turn on dependent on someone else. And one of the questions I get a lot is around self-pleasure because when people hear self-pleasure, generally they go to masturbation. That's sort of the association. Could you expand our awareness as to what pleasure is and how we start to discover that for ourselves and really make that part of our our, our self-love practice? I mean, I think we can do it every day in our lives, you know, like, like taking pleasure and joy in the things that we do every day is like, that's a missed opportunity for a lot of folks, Mm -hmm. because how often are we rushing through a meal? You know, I was guilty of that right before I got on here. I was like, oh man, I had like a meeting pretty close to this. I didn't have much time to eat. So I ate really fast and I didn't get to actually really enjoy my food. How often are we you know, not pausing to smell the flowers, so to speak, or literally, you know, it's like, I, I make a habit of, you know, like one of the things I love the most that's so pleasurable to me is wind. Mm. Like I love wind. I love the breeze on my face. And if I'm like walking or I'm talking with someone outside and a beautiful breeze comes up, I stop. I I've made a rule with myself that I stop and I feel it. I like close my eyes and I just let myself feel that for a moment. And I think it's, so it can be so many moments. It might be different things for different people, but it's like, what are those moments across your day where you can just take full pleasure in something like be so present with it and, and to do it audibly also, you know, I think we get to give ourselves more permission for like, Oh, oh my God, mm. this food is so good, you know, or whatever, like to really like relish things, you know? And I think that people have a lot of shame around relishing. It's like, 
oh, I should feel uncomfortable with that because there's something about pleasure that like we're supposed to keep it under wraps. We're supposed to keep it quiet and secret. And, um, and I think that the more of us that actually visibly, audibly, verbally, you know, really show our appreciation for life and our eroticism in the things in life that, that juice us up, um, whether it's sexy things or whether it's experiences of our senses, right? Our sensuality is our experience of the world through our senses. So, so whatever those things are, I think the more of us that do that, the more we create a world that embraces pleasure and sees it as something that is not like, it is not a luxury to feel pleasure. Like it is a necessity. (laughs) We were not put on this earth to be miserable and unhappy. And then maybe we squeeze in 10 minutes to get ourselves off once a week or once a month or whatever. Like that's, that is not what life is for. I'm, I'm sure of that. So, you know, we, we get to really enjoy the pleasure in the things that we do. And that might also be like work, you know? And I think it's like, like there's pleasure in finding liberation, you know, which, you know, Adrienne Marie Brown wrote about in her book, Pleasure Activism. It's like, there's like, we get to experience the pleasure of like fighting for the world that we want, you know, Mm -hmm. or, you know, like standing for our principles, you know, being in community, um, laughing with friends. I mean, there's such a range of things that we get to experience pleasure from. And because we're so busy, we're so overscheduled, we're so in a rush, we are missing it. Yeah. We are missing it so yeah. often, so much of the time. And I'm guilty of it too. Like I live in the same world. Like I, you know, we, it, I think it's bringing ourselves back to it over and over. And that really translates to our sex life. I know for me, when I really am taking those moments, I love the wind as well. I love the sound of wind through trees and hearing the leaves. I love oh, certain so material. Yes. I love music. And the more I'm actually paying attention to that and and, and really f- like enjoying that and savoring that, or even a hug from my husband, the more alive I am sexually. Because it's like I'm giving um, awareness and attention and I'm nurturing my pleasure. And I think that sex has become so much of a a getting off thing rather than a pleasurable, sensual activity that we've in a lot of ways lost connection with that sensual aspect of the human nature because we've been so busy (laughs) and we've been so Mm -hmm. desensitized and overstimulated and in our heads you know, it's so easy to, to be in our heads. And that's something I hear from so many people, especially women, is they're just in their head during sex. Mm-hmm. They just in their head, in their head, in their head, thinking about everything from their body to whether they're doing it right to the to-do list for tomorrow. Any tips for getting out of our head, especially during sex? I mean, I think it goes to what you just said. Like we have to do it on the regular. Because if you are in your head overthinking, like not connected to your body all day long, and then suddenly it's the end of the day and you're with your sweetie, you know, wanting to be present sexually and be in your body, that's not an easy transition to make, you know? So it, 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 I mean, it's like meditation, right? The more we meditate, I mean, and I think that's a piece of it, the more we meditate and take breaks from our brain 
and get ourselves into the present moment, the more we're going to be able to do that in sex. And then I think it's also like, are we taking care of our bodies? Are we working out? Are we, um, are we enjoying being in our bodies? Are we finding ways to do that? Even simple things like not just slapping lotion on after your shower Mm. and rushing to get dressed because you got to rush into your day, but like luxuriating in your lotioning of your body, like enjoying rubbing it into your body, you know, taking moments throughout your day to pause and put on a song you like and dance, you know, like what are the things that work for you to bring you into your body? You know, maybe it's doing planks. I don't know. You know, it can be anything, but you know, we, we get to get more connected to our bodies. And if we're not doing that in the rest of our lives, we're not going to probably do that very well sexually. So there's not like a, a magic way to turn it off, you know, in sex. But I I do think some of the same kinds of things can work. Like if, if we're running a list, you know, like tell, tell your sweetie to pause for a minute, go in the bathroom, jot down your list. (laughs) (laughs) Like you would do in the middle of the night. If you can't sleep, you get up, you write the list and then you can let it go. Right. And so, so maybe it's like trying things like that to see if that will help. Um, but really, you know, it's about mindfulness and presence Mm -hmm. and being in our bodies and learning how to do that in all sorts of ways. And sex is going to be magnanimously better if you can do that. Mm -hmm. What about for people who are just coming out of a divorce or a long-term relationship where sex was either kind of robotic or just not there and are going back into the dating world and are wanting to rediscover and reconnect to their sexuality, but feel intimidated or behind or like they've just dried up. What, what words of wisdom, because you're so good with this, do you have for people that fall into that group? It's like, it's like half my clients. Um, (laughs) (laughs) You know, I've learned to, I have really started to see divorce or let's say losing a partner, right? Shifting from being partnered into not being partnered, whether you lose a partner to divorce or death as a developmental phase of adulthood. Because unless you don't partner with people, you will experience that at some point in your life. I've experienced it. Most people I know have experienced it. To me, that time is actually such an exciting time. And, you know, I primarily work with women and, and, uh, non-binary people. And as I watch them, I, I see them in a very fertile, creative time. They're getting to, to recreate their lives. I went through the same thing when I went through divorce. So, you know, it's like this, this time when it's like, I get to have the things I've set aside. I've, I've left, you know, or that I compromised and didn't really want to compromise. And so, so I just want to say up front that I think it's a really exciting time. And usually I say congratulations to people because there's something you're getting back or that you're getting to open yourself to that you didn't get to before. And so let that excitement fuel you, you know, in, in dating and figuring out how to flirt again. You know, I mean, I flirt with everybody. I I flirt with the birds. I'm just like, (laughs) Oh man, I love your song today. That's awesome. I like talk to the birds. I talk to the trees. Like, you know, I, I flirt with the barista, you know, hopefully not in an inappropriate way, but just in a, like really flirting is attention, right? It's, it's noticing something about someone, you know, and sometimes it can be it's, it's playful. Yeah. And so it's just like, allow, like give yourself permission to just be playful and not have it mean anything. Right. 
Um, I think a lot of women learn to shut down their flirting, particularly if they've been in a monogamous long-term relationship. They really learn to shut it down um, because they think it means they have to like deliver on something. And yeah. I don't think that's what flirting actually is, right? Flirting is just like, it's, it's a suggestion of something or it's just being playful. It's noticing something. It's giving attention and presence to someone. Um, it's making someone feel good you know? Um, and so I think if we let go of some of those ideas that somehow we're going to owe somebody, um, because we allow ourselves to flirt a little, um, we get to have a lot more fun. And I think the more fun you're having and the more you're actually getting yourself in your own body and your own sexuality and pleasure, the more success you're going to have with getting back out on the scene and dating. I mean, you know, online dating is a whole thing of its own. <laughs> mm -hmm. I'm probably not the person to give everybody advice on that because I can't say I'm great at it myself. But I think the more that you are in your own confidence and you're in your body and the more you don't need someone else to fulfill you, but that you are fulfilled by yourself, that mm -hmm. is what makes you so attractive. Mm -hmm. And someday when we get to just be in social environments again with people, you know, that's going to go a long way mm -hmm. for you. Um, mm -hmm. but you know, I think it's like, take it step by step and don't be hard on yourself about it. Like no one has figured out online dating, you know, it's mm -hmm. like online dating is it's, 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 it's kind of its own beast. And, um, you know, some people have success with it. Um, you know, I think consistency like anything is really, uh, important with it, but I don't know anyone during COVID who's done super well with online dating. So <laughs> it wasn't, I think we're in a little bit of a, yeah, yeah. I didn't enjoy spell. it. Very, I, I was so, it was so satisfying to delete my dating apps. Once I got with my husband, mm -hmm. it was like, mm -hmm. Oh, thank God. Um, I, I want to talk about transitions. We just talked about the transition from being in monogamous relationship to singlehood. Another transition that I see a lot of, I don't know if I call it a transition, but a change that a lot of women go through is realizing that maybe they don't want to be with men anymore. They find themselves mm -hmm. attracted to women. And it's it's shocking sometimes for some of them. For others, it's like, oh, this makes a lot of sense. But I'd love to, for you to speak a little bit about that and how um, anyone, whether it's a woman wanting to be with women or men wanting to be with men or, or whatever it may be, something that you know, you're going against what you thought you were, you're maybe going against what your parents or society expects you to be, how we can do that with, with grace and really not mute our sexuality because we may have shame or fear. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a big one. You know, I hear that from, from women a lot as well. And, uh, you know, your sexuality, I, I think the number one thing I want people to really get is that your sexuality is very dynamic. It is not static. <laughs> I mean, nothing, nothing in, in humanity is really. Um, but I think a lot of times we treat sexuality like it's the static thing of like, okay, I've become an adult. I'm in a marriage. That's who I have sex with. And things are on autopilot. And, and now it's just supposed to work, <laughs> you know, which of course there's a lot of problems with that equation, but your, your sexuality, no matter what kind of relationship you are in or, or experiences you've had is very dynamic and it shifts over time. You know, I just turned 50 
And my 50-year-old body doesn't want the same things that my 25-year-old body wanted mm-hmm. um, or my 35-year-old body wanted uh, necessarily. So, you know, there's we have different phases of our sexuality and that's one of the most beautiful things about it is that it, it ebbs and flows it, you know, we, we discover this thing that we love for a while, or we have this relationship that opens up this part of our sexuality. And then we move on to something different and something else is lighting us up. And, you know, I think the key is that we're being lit up by whatever we're exploring in that time of our lives. And so if we grew up, with religious ideas or cultural ideas that tell us, you know, it's not okay to be with another woman or someone of your gender or have that kind of relationship, whatever that kind of relationship is, it's hard to let ourselves feel free. It's hard to let ourselves go and fully be in that experience and explore it um, until we reckon with that idea and decide that, you know, maybe that's not the idea you want to carry into the rest Mm. of your life. Um, so I think that's, that's a big one that, that comes up for people is letting go of kind of what they've been told, what they've been taught and just allowing themselves to actually be attracted by what they're attracted to and, Mm. um, and see it as, wow, this is a new part of my sexuality. I get to explore. I've not had this before. And sometimes people are in relationships with, you know, there might be a, a woman that, has known herself to be heterosexual, who's in a relationship with a man, but then starts to have those feelings. And if you have a healthy enough relationship that you can actually talk about that with your partner, then that is going to like help you integrate that more into your being. Um, but I think when we feel like we have to hide it, we feel shame about it. We feel like there's something wrong with it. That's when it's going to eat away at us or we're not going to allow ourselves to have a healthy expression of that. Mm -hmm. And you might choose to act on it and you might not. It might just be, it's just a thing that I fantasize about and I love, but I don't necessarily want to really have sex with another woman. Or it might be that, that you really want to get to explore that. And so also understanding that there's a whole range of what that experience can be. Um, but I think the other place people get really hung up on is around their identity, yes. you know, and I think this is a thing that the younger generation is so awesome <laughs> about mm-hmm. because they are like, whatever identity politics don't care, not naming ourselves. You're not putting me in a box. I get to love who I want to love. I get to have sex with who I want to have sex with. And you're not telling me otherwise. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's so much, I think we are going to learn from, you know, which generation are we on? Is it Y, Z? (laughs) (laughs) The millennials were Y. So now we've got the the I gen or Gen Z, Z, whatever you want to call them. Yeah. Yeah. So (laughs) there's just a lot for us to learn from, from that. And, um, to not be so hung up on labels that, you know, it's like, let your body move the way your body wants to move and dance the way it wants to dance. And, you know, as long as you're in right relationship with those you're in relationship with, like you get to groove with who you want to groove with. Mm, I love that. I love that. And, you know, I'm thinking about as we're talking the whole LGBTQ community and how much shame impacts that particular community and expectations and you know, not necessarily the younger generation, but maybe older generations that reinforce the way things should be. I I would love to just talk about that community and maybe some of the particular things that they deal with in terms of sexuality that people that identify as heterosexual and, you know, quote unquote, the norm, which I don't 
believe that, but that's what a lot of people see as the norm, um, may not understand. Yeah. I mean, it's such a big, <laughs> it's such a big can of worms. Yeah. You know, I like big cans um, of worms. I can't help yeah, it. <laughs> I, know. I, like, I like that. I like that. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a, a queer woman and, and have been my whole adult life. And, you know, even, even that question, you know, when I say that sometimes people are like, well, what does queer mean? And what's the difference between lesbian? You know, I think a lot of times there's that explaining, which I'm an educator and I don't mind having those conversations. Not everyone wants to explain mm-hmm. that all the time. I think one of, you know, I think there's a number of big things. I mean, I think one of the biggest and and one that is changing because of all of the political activism that we have done as a community and that our allies have done on our behalf as well is that we have more visibility. Um, you know, I think that in the past, especially it has been very hard. Like when I was growing up, there was no healthy gay character on television, Mm. not one. Mm. Um, it was always the butt of a joke if it was there at all. I didn't have kids that were out in my high school and I went to three different high schools and I didn't know one gay kid. (laughs) So, you know, so I think just having the visibility is so, it's so much better now. I mean, we still have a ways to go, but it's so much better. So a lot of things come with that, you know, like having the presence of what real equality and human rights means for queer people depending where you are and who you are. I mean, people can still not be able to go into a hospital to see their partner Mm. when something's tragic has happened or after a surgery or a near death experience or whatever. Like a lot of times it's like, well, you're not family. You don't get to come in, you know? So, I mean, there's very real things like that, that happen. Certainly discrimination still happens. Um, you know, there's still, you know, we still have a ways to go. Um, and we've made, we've made a lot of progress and I'm very, you know, grateful and hopeful about that progress that we have made. Mm. You know, I think for young people, we're still seeing very high suicide rates, very high rates of sexual exploitation, very high homeless rates. You know, when you look at the, um, all of the kids that are homeless, um, GLBT, LGBTQ uh, kids are, you know, the rates are much, much, much higher. So, you know, there's, there's real things for young people, especially. And, um, part of my advocacy has always been for LGBTQ youth because they still face a lot, you know, and I think with the internet, there's more visibility and they're able to find each other and find community more. And there's more online harassment, there's more bullying, you know? So it's like, we've got both, you know, and so there's still really a lot of work to do for, Mm. you know, I think for just the world to just be accepting of people and who they are. It's like, we don't all need to be the same. That's, that would be a very boring world. Such (laughs) a boring world. world. (laughs) And I think our own, our own sexual hangups and shame and unprocessed stuff impacts how accepting we are of others. You know, we just project our shame um, onto others. And Oh yeah. As we start to wrap up here, I want to talk about parents and we have a lot of parents, a lot of young parents, people that want to become parents as a parent. How do you nurture your child's sexuality? 
Uh, so many great ways. I mean, there's so many good resources now for this. Um, you know, I think number one is you don't shame your child Mm -hmm. and it's hard if you haven't healed your own shame. So let me, let me back that up a step, heal your own shame, Mm -hmm. right? Because it's just what you just said. When, if you as a parent haven't healed your own shame, then you can unwittingly, even, you know, even if that's really not what you want to do, like you can still project that onto your child. You walk in the room and you see them playing with their genitals and you like scream at them because you just have this knee jerk reaction rather than like, Oh, you know, looks like you're exploring, Mm -hmm. you know, like it's really like normalizing it. Like, Oh, you know, you know, and a lot of the questions I'll get around kids is like, Oh, you know, my child is like masturbating in the middle of the living room when there's people present sometimes. And so it's like, yeah. So then the conversation is, you know what, that's a really, you know, that feels good when you touch your body like that, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. You know, like you can have that conversation. You can normalize the fact that it feels good teach them that that's a private act and it's something that you, they get to do in their room and that they don't do in the middle of the living room, mm-hmm. you know? And so like when we can just have those very more matter of fact conversations that aren't like emotionally laden with all of this, mm-hmm. with all of our own stuff, you know, I think that's when we create healthy kids and, you know, and that includes teaching them just like teaching them their body parts. Like, Oh, that's your vulva, you know, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, those are your labia, you know? Yeah. Those are your testicles. Like that just gets to be a normal thing that they learn. Um, and you know, I think a lot of parents still are teaching their kids these like pet names. Yes, for their I was going to ask you about that. <laughs> yeah. I never, that's never made sense to me. I'm like, it's not a hoo-ha it's, it's, it's a vagina. Like that's what it is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And even like vagina is like the vagina is the internal canal, right? So mm-hmm. the whole of it is the vulva. So it's like even like, you know, teaching accurate anatomy to your kids, just like you, you wouldn't teach them their arm is a hoo-ha, you know, right. <laughs> or like right. their leg, like you call it a leg. So, so I think teaching them the actual names of their anatomy and that it's something they can be prideful about that they can, you know, that that's, you know, an important part of their bodies and not something that's like a joke because, so we give it this jokey name, you know, and it's like, if you come up with some pet name over time, but you've still, you've taught them the actual anatomy, fine, (laughs) you know, but like, but do teach them the real words, you know? So I think it's things like that, you know, really looking at what are the different ways I might be projecting shame onto Mm -hmm. my kid and how can I really look at myself about that and like why I'm coming forward that way with my child and what I'm really afraid of. Cause usually there's something you're probably afraid of. Um, and then what could be a healthier response? And, um, yeah, there's, there's some great resources. There's a book called when the subject is sex, which is like questions and answers to the most common questions that kids ask, um, that are age appropriate over time. And so I think, like reading a book like that, or, you know, there's lots of podcasts and things now. I'm sure you can find some great interviews with people who focus on child, um, early childhood and and childhood sexuality, Mm. because there's great resources out there and great ways to handle it. And, you know, one of the main things is you always, when your child does ask a question, first of all, if they're asking you a question about sex or sexuality, that means you're open enough that they're asking you a question. So that's amazing. amazing. (laughs) And so when they do, 
like honor them for that. Wow. I'm so glad you asked me that Mm -hmm. question. You know, even if you have no clue what the answer is first validate, like, I'm so glad you're asking, you know what? I'm not totally sure about that. Why don't we look it up together? Let's find some information, you know? So you can also teach them that like, we don't always know the answers, but that we can research it. We can find information or, or tell them I'll come back to you. Let me think about that. And let's talk about that tomorrow, you know, and make sure you do, if you say you're going to come back to them. And the book you mentioned was called when the subject is sex? When the subject is sex. Yeah. Pamela, Pam Wilson or Pamela Wilson, uh, and ETR associates published that years ago, but it's still, it's still a great go-to. And it's one mm-hmm. that I recommend all the time. I used to teach teachers how to address sexuality in the classroom. And I always had them read that book. I love that. I love that. And I know that if parents heal their own shame and remove shame from their children's sexuality, their child is going to be so much better equipped to have a healthy sexual life with themselves and with another. And they're going to be so much more open-minded and accepting of people who may not have the same sexual preferences and who may identify differently. I always think it just starts at home. Yes, we need to make the, the impacts and change things out in the world as adults and parents raising different children by healing their own stuff first and creating that safe space for their child. That's where I get excited because that's where I think so much change can really happen. And we're, we're lucky to have so many open-minded parents. That's, that's what's really amazing about the millennial generation, which now are, you know, the oldest millennials are in their early forties is they're raising kids. And they were really the generation to speak up and, and want equality for all and want a diverse workplace and really Mm -hmm. question a lot of the quote unquote norms that were out there in the world. And now that generation is having parents. So it's going to be really cool to see the children of that generation and how they show up in the world. So I, I get excited about that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and don't doubt for a moment that you raising your kids that way and you healing your own shame does change the world. Like, mm-hmm. absolutely. We are making a better world by doing mm-hmm. that. Like this is that important. It yeah. really is. Yeah. Well, the work that you're doing is so incredible. Thank you so much for using your own trauma and your own challenges to become an educator and, and just such a, an inspiration for so many people. And what I really get from you is that you create a safe space for people to talk about things that they've probably never talked about. And that's such a gift. So thank you so much for your work. Thank you. Yeah. I loved getting to talk to you about it. Thank you Mm -hmm. so much for your really insightful questions. And it's just, it's such an important part of our lives. We get to, we get to have that too. Yes. (laughs) And please share how people can find you, connect with you, any courses that you have open, because I'm certain that people are going to want more. Yeah. Yeah. My, you know, I teach my, my firewoman program and, um, we are gearing up for our next round of that right now. Like I said, the new year's ritual is happening. If you just want to like dip a toe in and do a little thing, you know, and then I have an in-person sexual empowerment program that, you know, I've got women who are ready and signed up. And as soon as we can meet in person again, we're going to be, we're going to be doing that. So yeah, the new website is imaginenation.com and amyjogoddard.com is sort of like the old hub. So we're kind of right in the middle of our changeover right now. Mm -hmm. So, but you'll be able to find me at, at both 
Um, but yeah, join, join the community. And, you know, if you want to join our mailing list and see what we're up to and see how it resonates, um, please do. And yeah, if you're interested in jumping into some work, write to us and Mm. we'll talk to you about it. And the new year's ritual is for anyone, any gender, any identification, anyone, all genders. Yep. All genders. Everyone's welcome to that. Yeah. Thank you so much. Imagine I had a great conversation with you. And again, thank you for the work that you're doing. Thank you so much, Christine. This was great.